0: All right, grab your Bible, follow along with me in First Peter chapter 3, First Peter chapter 3, as we continue to plow on through this book of the Bible. Now, it's pretty widely acknowledged that the overarching theme of First Peter is what some have called holiness under pressure. It's about perseverance in faith despite difficulty. Now, we've seen that theme in our study up to this point, both in the specific statements of chapter one about being grieved by various trials in order to test the genuineness of our faith, as well as in Peter's treatment of the various relational domains that we've covered over the last four weeks or so. You remember that when Peter is giving instructions about uh, how to relate to different uh, facets of society in order to live honorably among the Gentiles, all that stuff that we've been in for the last four weeks, he talks about government, he talks about our relationship to uh, masters or employers, talks about our relationship to our husbands and wives, and then last week talked about our relationships with each other, all under that umbrella of, hey, steward, these relational opportunities Well, and you'll be living honorably among the Gentiles. Um, But when he handles those sections, he didn't just give instructions about how to relate to those uh, different entities or individuals in sort of a status quo, neutral, or best case scenario kind of way. Uh, He covers it with regard to the various trials that he knows. That they are experiencing. So he didn't just give instructions for how to relate to the government. He gave instructions about how to relate to a despotic government because he's bearing in mind that they're suffering various trials. It's a call to holiness under pressure. He didn't just give instructions for how to relate to your master if you're a slave. He gave instructions for how to relate to an unjust master if you're a slave because, again, he's keeping in mind they're suffering various trials. So he's calling them to holiness. Under pressure. He didn't just give instructions for how to relate to husbands if you're a wife. He gave instructions about how to relate to a husband who doesn't obey the word. Because, again, he knows they're suffering various trials. Therefore, he's calling them to holiness under pressure. It's in this context of those various trials that they're called to be holy as the Father is holy. Because that's the big theme of this letter. Life is hard. Be holy life is hard, be holy. And in fact, even in Peter's second epistle, he, he continues on that theme and wants to make sure that it it's not misunderstood by them, that somehow they've got the intrinsic or innate ability to live this way. This isn't like they look in the mirror every morning, and they speak Lady Gaga's you know, like personal affirmations over themselves because they saw it on Oprah and that's how you unlock your inner potential and all of this is already locked away inside of you. You just need to unleash your moral perfection on the world by means of your own discipline, willpower, and whatever. Uh, No, he wants to make clear in his second letter that, quote, everything that we need for life and godliness has been supplied for us. That is to say that he can call us to this kind of holiness because we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, and an index of that is that we've been empowered by the very Spirit of God to be obedient in the pursuit of holiness. And so uh, he's not saying you've got everything that you need within yourself to weather these trials in a way that is faithful. No, the idea is that because of everything that God has done, because of what Christ has supplied, because of his grace upon grace as given through the pouring out of the Spirit, you can do this. So life is hard, be holy. Now we may be tempted to think that if God wants us to be holy, He should help us out by giving us comfortable circumstances in which to pursue that holiness rather than calling us to that holiness in the midst of trials. Perhaps he should make us wealthy, comfortable, and well-fed, and then call us to holiness once our conditions are more well-suited to such a pursuit, because then we don't have to spend all of these mental and emotional and spiritual energies on trying to endure the suffering, and we can just pour all of that energy directly into our pursuit of holiness. But as tempting a thought as that may be, it seems that our wealth and comfort in the first wor- first world situation that we live in has actually sadly served as more of a distraction from holiness than an aid in its achievement. Right? And so we can see those things. In fact, that makes me think of a, a passage in Hebrews chapter 12 around verse 26 um, where it says, I'm paraphrasing, uh, that God likes to shake up that which can be shaken— so that that which cannot be shaken remains. And so often in our prosperity, what that does, it puts all of these other things into our lives that are supposed to be blessings that point us to God, but we end up staring at those blessings and in fact lose sight of God. So sometimes via trials, he'll shake those things up, knock them off the shelves kick over a few walls in our lives such that we're able to see what didn't break, what's eternal, what's sure, what's steadfast. And and we'll kind of clear some of those things out of our field of vision so that what remains, that which is unshaken, can again become uppermost in our affections and in our pursuits. And so that's one of the functions that trials serve. So sometimes he'll clear those distractions away through trials And that actually kickstarts or regalvanizes or energizes our pursuit of holiness because we can again see what it is we're supposed to be in pursuit of. So God is wise and his word is true. So here's how the Apostle Paul talks about sufferings. He says in Romans, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. So scripture seems quite clear that it's difficulty, not ease, that is best for our souls. Suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. The hope that God really is at work in us, as evidenced by his growing us through trials, rather than destroying us through them. Our hope is that not a single one of those trials or pressures is ever wasted, useless, or capricious. On the contrary, they're purposed, planned, and lovingly administrated or, excuse me, administered by a God who is determined to mature us. Our sufferings and the resultant endurance, character, and hope that they produce are flashing neon signs pointing to the reality that in Christ the Father loves us, which is why he bothers to make us suffer. He wants us to be as Christ is, holy. But we cannot be as Christ is without walking as Christ walked. And Christ was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and familiar with unjust suffering. That's one of Peter's points in this section of his letter, that you cannot be conformed to the image of Christ, this holiness that he wants us to pursue, without sharing in the sufferings of Christ. You cannot be conformed to the image of Christ without sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Or, stated differently, you cannot be like Christ without being like Christ. That is to say that experiences with trials and injustices are necessary in the lives of believers because they produce Christlikeness and are opportunities to display the Christlikeness that is in production. And so now we'll see those things in the text. Let's read 1 Peter 3, verse nine. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. And Peter's telling these believers that they were called to be reviled. That is, insulted, slandered, railed against, persecuted, etc. They were called to that. And they were called to it so that they could be put in positions to become like Christ by being like Christ. You see, practice makes perfect, and so God gives us, as his dearly loved children, opportunities to practice being who he made us to be. You won't become like Christ without being put in situations like the ones that Christ was in. They were also put in this position so that they might obtain a blessing, as the text says. We'll consider that more specifically in verse 10, But you'll remember that Peter's already issued the charge for us to live this way when he says uh, that slaves should submit to to unjust masters. During that section in chapter 2, he effectively tells those slaves under unjust masters uh, to embrace that as an opportunity to live like Christ did. He says, when Christ was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Here's the idea. We live Godward lives, entrusting ourselves to him who judges justly rather than performing for those who judge unjustly. Even when we've been wronged, insulted, belittled, slandered, etc., our concern in those situations is to please our Father, just like it should be in every situation. We don't lose Focus on that because we live Godward lives. So even when men wrong, insult, belittle, slander us, our concern is to please our Father, not to set men straight or settle scores or prove ourselves to people. So if closing my mouth rather than opening it in such circumstances would be more pleasing to God or more representative of Christ, then I should keep my mouth closed, even in the face of an offense even in the face of a slander. Even if that response means that I'll be judged as impotent or daft or a pushover, as indeed Christ himself was judged. The all-powerful creator of the universe was mocked, beaten, spat upon, and murdered. And as far as his enemies were concerned, he was losing. He was powerless to stop them from their perspective. They even taunted him. If you're able to save yourself, then do it. Show us. Prove it! And of course he could have. But his obedience to his Father and his affection for us kept him on his cross. It was not their judgment of him that mattered because he was entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He lived his life Godward without concern for proving himself to men. We're called to live our lives the same way entrusting ourselves to the one who cares about and knows the truth rather than spinning our wheels trying to achieve the approval or the applause of men or trying to put men in their places in an an attempt to exalt ourselves. We're willing to remain lowly and wait for the Father to exalt us even as he exalted Christ. So when evil is done to us, we don't repay it. When insults are hurled our way, we don't hurl insults back. But this shouldn't be because we lack the know-how or the mental acuity to repay or respond. It should be because we are meek, like Christ. This is a very important point. Christians should not lack the ability to destroy our opponents, whether rhetorically or otherwise. On the contrary, we should work to possess that ability and then refrain from using it on our enemies. Those are very different things. That's what meekness is. It's strength or power under control. It's restraint. Christians, in fact, should be the most capable of repaying evil for evil and reviling for reviling. We should have strong social networks that can work on our behalf. We should have built and be building businesses that give us influence and authority in our local communities. We should be people who, by virtue of our competence, hold positions that we could use to hurt people. Christians should be the most competent group of people on the planet. We should have the quickest wit, the most skillful hands, the most developed thoughts, and the most eloquent speech. We should have the arsenal of an excellent education, making it so that we could own anyone in any exchange. And then we shouldn't. That's a very different thing than the beta version of Christianity that's so common in our time, wherein we want everyone to play nice because we couldn't handle it if they didn't because we're weak and soft and pathetic and undereducated and ill-equipped. No, we should be monsters. Well-trained warriors who know how to make a kill, but who know that most of the time we aren't called to. You should think about your personal development that way. You should think about the education of your children that way. Are you setting yourself and your children up to be meek? Which means that they have all the capacity in the world that's being developed and honed. But they control it. Only unleashing those competencies in service to Christ rather than in the service of their flesh. That's part of why education is so important to us around here. and We make reference to it all the time because we can't be meek without it. It's the meek who will inherit the earth, not the incompetent and weak who couldn't have done anything to their enemies anyway. Develop stores of competence so that you actually have something to restrain. And once you are this way, you can take joy in blessing those whom you could have destroyed. You'll take joy in being gentle when you know that you could have been violent. This is talking about choosing to bless when you could revile and harm, not running away because you couldn't have done anything otherwise. See, part of sanctification is learning to love restraint, learning to love self-control. And this goes for every kind of temptation, really, whether it be the temptation to revile someone or the temptation to sexual immorality or the temptation to spend money idolatrously or whatever it is. Learn to love discipline and self-control more than self-indulgence, such that you get a dopamine hit every time you tell yourself no and tell Christ yes. But here's the question. Why? Why should we? Why educate yourself well, develop the life of the mind, learn valuable skills with your hands, and become a well-rounded virtuoso, only to restrain yourself in the face of your enemies, when you perhaps might most like to unleash those things? Well, Peter gives us two reasons why we should live this restrained life, when he says, don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for or because to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. So two, re- two reasons he gives there for living the restrained life. One, God says to, for to this you were called, you were called not to repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. And then secondly, that you may obtain a blessing. So living this way is the way to blessing. And he details that as he continues now in verses 10 through 12, where he's actually quoting from Psalm chapter 34. Verse 10 says this, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Peter's plainly teaching with the rest of Scripture that if you live the restrained life, it will be a life that is richly blessed by God, while the one who lives the indulgent life will be antagonized by God. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous who restrain their tongues, who restrain their their lips who restrain their impulses to do evil the eyes of the lord are on those who employ self-control but those who unleash all of those things indulging the passions of their flesh to revile when they're reviled not to keep their lips from deceit when it serves them well etc etc the face of the lord is against those Who do that kind of evil? The evil of self-indulgence. This is Peter's why. Why restrain myself? (laughs) Why, Why not revile when I'm reviled? Why not return insult for insult? Why not dominate people if I'm capable of dominating people? Well, according to Peter, it's because you'll undermine your own goal if you try to achieve it that way. You see, the goal if we can phrase it that way, of Psalm 34, which is being quoted here by Peter. That goal is a goal that we share, right? We want to love life and see good days. He says, whoever desires to love life and see good days, here's what you do. Now, that goal we would all agree with. I want to love life and I want to see good days. But we've got a different take in our flesh on how to achieve that goal than the one that Peter lays out for us. See, we're naturally motivated to do the opposite of what Peter commands in this text, precisely because we want to love life and see good days. We've got a different approach to trying to make it happen, and our approach doesn't work. See, in our thinking, people reviling us without us getting the satisfaction of reviling them in return puts a dampener on our love for life and makes it a bad day. So instead, in pursuit of loving life, And having good days, we revile in return, trying to reverse the effect of the initial act of reviling. But all that ever does is perpetuate the reviling, ensuring that you cannot love life and see good days, because every day is then filled with reviling, because no no one ever puts an end to that cycle. So Peter's calling us to live in such a way that God gives us love for life and good days, rather than us trying to snatch it, fight for it, Or take it ourselves. He's saying that you can live in such a way that God will give you love for life and good days rather than you having to take it. It's the difference between my kids obeying me and me giving them dessert versus them disobeying and they're trying to sneak it later. I'm always going to find out and they're always going to lose. You see, what's given by the Father is ours, but what we take Will be taken from us. So in the moment it feels like the satisfying thing to do, the thing that would make us love life and see good days would be defending ourselves, you know, owning our interlocutor or destroying our opponents. but whatever can be won can be lost. But if the Lord gives it to you, it's really yours. This is in part what Paul's getting at in Galatians 5.15 when he says, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. You see, if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. Live by reviling. Die by reviling. Don't live your life fighting for what God wants to give you for free. Now, this is obvious, but it's worth stating rather than assuming. But in quoting Psalm 34, where he did, Peter's teaching us that the prohibition against our tongues speaking evil, our lips speaking deceit, etc., those prohibitions are not annulled by the fact that someone else may have started it. And again, we can see that from the context in which the psalm is quoted. In verse 9, Peter says, do not repay evil for evil. And then in verse 10, he says, because... If you want to see good days and love life, you'll keep your tongue from evil, your lips from deceit, and you'll turn away from evil to do good. Meaning, given the context from verse 9, that we are to keep our tongue from evil and our lips from deceit and turn away from evil, even when our enemies refuse to do so. So, when our enemies are saying evil things, when our enemies are employing deceit, when our enemies aren't turning away from evil, and rather are insisting upon evil, even in that context, we don't flex on those things. He isn't talking about an unprovoked impulse to say and do evil and deceitful things. He's talking about a provoked impulse to say and do evil and deceitful things. Peter's talking about how we respond when we aren't the ones who started it See, if you started it, it's easy to know what to do. You ask for for forgiveness and you repent. But what about when you didn't start it? Well, according to Peter, if you didn't start it, you bless the person who did. This is, of course, exactly what Christ did for us. We started it. We broke fellowship. We transgressed his law. We elevated ourselves above him in our own minds and then in our actions. We're the ones who worked against his plan for his creation and set ourselves against his purposes. And how did God treat his enemies? Well, he blessed us beyond measure, didn't he? And that takes us back to verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. You see, this isn't simply a call to restraint. It isn't just a negative or a prohibition. There's also a positive and a call to action. It's not just a prohibition that always leaves the Christian in a state of inaction with stores of intellect and ability that continue to go unused in the face of his enemies because he has to restrain himself. No, we are called to unleash our intellect and ability in the direction of our revilers, but we're told to do it in a way that blesses them not in a way that's intended to harm them. So don't hear me saying, become competent, develop skills, carve out influence in your community, make yourself a rhetorical wizard, and then don't use any of that with respect to your enemies. No, it's actually much harder than that, actually. (laughs) Not only are you not supposed to use your capacities to harm your revilers, you're supposed to use those capacities to bless them, because that's how Christ used his capacities in relation to his enemies. We must remember that grace and truth are are ours in Christ, but vengeance belongs to who? The Lord alone. Vengeance is God's. Grace and truth are ours. So we can dispense grace and we can dispense truth, but we do not get to enact vengeance for grievances that we have. Peter is effectively recapitulating or applying our Lord's teaching from the Sermon on the Mount, wherein he says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, love your enemies and bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who use you and persecute you. You can see the similarity there. Don't repay the evil person. Bless them. But we have to think carefully about the application of this text, don't we? Especially in in our modern times. Because often what we love to do in modern thinking with these sorts of Bible verses um, is we try to outsource our morality. We, we try to collectivize it and distance ourselves from the personal application of it. In fact, I'd say that's what a lot of modern liberalism is. Uh, All all of their supposed indignation about about injustices um, end up being an indignation that seeks solutions that are collectivized rather than personalized. It's moral outsourcing. So the modern liberal will say things like, it's very important for the poor to be cared for by the government because I'm not going to do it personally. (laughs) Right. And so they want big government programs. They don't want to be generous individuals. Right Or uh, it's very important to house the foreigner and the stranger in our midst. You've heard those those uh, passages from the Old Testament law in debates with your Christian friends about uh, immigration, haven't you? Um, well, of course, we should have porous and, and or open borders. You, don't you know your Old Testament? Don't you know that God welcomes a foreigner and the stranger, et cetera, et cetera? But what they mean when they say it's very important to house the foreigner and the stranger in our midst is—, is it's very important for them to be housed in government housing projects that are paid for by taxpayer dollars so that they don't have to be neighbors with those people, (laughs) right? It's outsource the morality rather than taking any semblance of personal responsibility for the moral injunctions. So we have a tendency to apply these instructions, these kinds of instructions, which are for interpersonal relationships to societal institutions. But the the government isn't commanded to forgive the evil person. It's commanded to use the sword on him, right? But we want to switch places with the state in these matters. We often want a compassionate state that rehabilitates our criminals rather than executing them, manifesting the grace of the gospel, so long as we don't have to personally manifest the grace of the gospel by forgiving in relationships with the brother, sister, mom, or dad who wounded us personally. So we want grace for the public offender, but for the private offender, we would rather take our vengeance, hold our grudge, whatever it is. But we hold to the illusion that we believe in these passages by applying them to contexts and situations to which they, in fact, do not apply. We often insist publicly on what we refuse privately, and we want to apply passages civically that are intended to be applied interpersonally. So the command before us today is in reference to personal grievances, not societal ones. P.J. O'Rourke, a recently deceased political pundit and commentator, uh, had a great quip that I think captures this impulse, this modern impulse toward moral outsourcing. He said, quote, everyone wants to save the planet, but no one wants to help mom with the dishes, uh, which is to say that we're great at taking responsibility for things that we cannot take meaningful responsibility for. Now, all that to say that this text and others like it cannot be turned into passages that subvert justice or demand that there be no temporal consequences for evil or pretend that judgment and sentencing are always inappropriate. You don't get to look at this text and then say, how can Christians be for capital punishment when they aren't supposed to repay evil for evil? Well, that's easy. The state punishing a criminal isn't easy. It's what God commanded the state to do. But you're not supposed to take personal vengeance against those who wrong your family. Two separate things. The command here is limited to our personal response and demeanor. And we know that because of the commands that are given to the other governments that God has established. God has instituted self-government, and it is to that government that he is speaking in this morning's text. But the institution of the family isn't commanded to turn the other cheek, but to discipline Right? If you're always turning the other cheek with your toddler, do you know what kind of child, teenager, and adult you're going to send out into the world? Not the kind with whom I'd like to interact. Right? God has instituted the church not to turn the other cheek, but to excommunicate. Or the institution of the state, as we already discussed, isn't commanded to turn the other cheek, but to punish so the proper application of this text is not to stop disciplining your children and then call it gospel-centered parenting or respecting their boundaries, nor is it to argue for churches to stop being judgmental in their standards for their congregations. Neither, again, is it to argue against capital punishment. The proper application of this text is to the individual Christian who has been personally wrong. So with that personal and interpersonal context of this injunction well established, let's look now at verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? In other words, if you live the way that I've just described, who's going to want to antagonize you? Who's going to want to revile you and do evil things to you if you really live that way? then why would you have any enemies? Now, I love this question because it demonstrates that normally living this way leads to loving life and seeing good days. See, generally speaking, when you repay good for evil, it turns your enemies into your friends and those who once reviled you may, upon observing your reaction to their reviling, actually come to love and respect you. So when we're speaking interpersonally, it's true that a gentle answer turns away wrath. It's true that those who guard their mouths and keep their tongues would keep themselves from calamity. It's true that a hot-tempered person stirs up conflict, but the one who is patient calms a quarrel. Those are all truisms from the Proverbs that are just that, generally true. But Peter has recently watched the most meek, gentle, cool-tempered man in history be hated and hung on a cross. So he grants that there are exceptions to this rule. So he has to keep going on from verse 13 into verse 14, lest he give the false impression that this is some like ironclad strategy for achieving relational harmony, or that meekness ensures a frictionless life. It clearly doesn't, or the Lord Jesus would not have been killed, and the early church martyrs would not have been so numerous. Primarily, the reason that living this way doesn't ensure a frictionless life is because, as we've noted, there are realms beyond the interpersonal. You see, these things that we've talked about work, primarily, for the most part, in most situations, if we're limiting it to the interpersonal domain. But once you start adding the layers of family, church, and state to the mix, There's no guarantee that you comporting yourself properly individually will lead to positive outcomes more broadly, because the societal can often overshadow the interpersonal. Some examples from history. If the Jews in Germany can be tied to national collapse, then my concern for my nation may trump my personal encounters with individual Jewish people and make me a willing participant in their destruction despite having had positive interactions with them interpersonally. Or, if black Americans can be convinced that whites are evil oppressors who are holding them back from economic success, then the incalculable number of pleasant interactions that those blacks have had with white people can be disregarded by them, and they'll throw bricks through their windows anyway, despite having never been personally wronged by a white person. You see, Peter knows that these dynamics exist and that they can weaken the power of the interpersonal as the interpersonal succumbs to the political. And so he addresses what goes, or excuse me, so he has to address what to do when we get it right personally, and it all falls apart anyway. He's got to address that because our Lord himself had a life that was marked by absolute interpersonal perfection. And yet, those other domains that we discussed created enough controversy and friction that it didn't matter. So, verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, He's saying, again, generally living the way that I've described above leads to the blessing of loving life and seeing good days. But even if it doesn't lead to that blessing, it will lead to blessing of some kind at some time. One thing to note here is that this means that it's most certainly acceptable for Christians to be motivated by blessings and rewards. Uh, There was a movement in reform circles some 10 to 15 years ago that revived the pietistic notion that obeying God for any motivation other than pure affection for him was somehow unfaithful and required repentance. Um, So a bunch of Christians who'd been doing meaningful ministry and service for the Lord ceased those efforts or became spiritually encumbered in them. Because now they were always assessing whether or not what they were doing what they were doing for the proper internal motivation, namely raw and unadulterated affection for God. The problem with that is that the Bible tries to motivate our behavior with blessing and reward constantly, as Peter is doing in this text. You see, there are times, if I'm just going to be honest with you, think our relationship is at this point. There are times when I'm working or serving the Lord or discharging some duty and I don't want to. And the conscious thought that moves my hands and feet to obedience is often not, you know what, I'm just overwhelmed with this raw, pure, unadulterated, like just wonderful moment of affection for God. And that's taken me over to such a degree degree that I'm just compelled to serve him and obey him. Frankly, often it's, you know what, I understand that this way leads to blessing and this way leads to destruction. I choose blessing. I believe Peter's telling us God counts that. Keep it up. God counts that. Now, sometimes in his kindness, he adds a wonderful emotional feeling of affection to that equation. And sometimes he doesn't. So Peter doesn't tether our obedience to the sometimes present and sometimes absent feeling of affection for God. Instead, he tethers it to the constant promise of blessing from God. And hear me, that's no small demonstration of faith on our part. When everything in us wants to go left, but we know that God has called us to go right. And so what we do is we shelf our feelings and we say, I believe God when he tells me that right is better. So I'm gonna table my feelings. I'm gonna obey God because this way will bless me, because that's what God said. When you do that, like that's that's faith, whether you whether you felt fuzzy while you did it or not. But Pietism tries to teach us that if we didn't feel fuzzy, it didn't really count. Right? Don't fall for that. Obeying God because you believe that he will bless you is right. Because it shows that you trust God more than your feelings. Because your feelings in a given moment, when you want to do the opposite of what God says, your feelings are telling you that disobeying God is the real path to blessing. And so what is it except a mark of your trust, faith, confidence in God? When despite feeling like you don't want to obey him, you do it instead. This honors him. This is good. This is right. To obey God for blessing is counted by God as a mark of your trust of him. And then in the verses that we just read, 14 to 17, Peter moves to the evangelistic opportunities that the situation that he's been describing produces, that being the situation in which you lived uprightly and you got crushed anyway. He says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, that being the people who are reviling you and persecuting you and doing evil to you, despite the fact that you've uh, you've upheld your interpersonal end of the bargain and are not reviling in return and are not giving your lips to deceit, etc., etc. So have no fear of them, don't be troubled, but in your heart's honor, Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect see, nobody asks you why you're so hopeful when everything is going well. <laughs> it's obvious why you're hopeful when everything is going well. The point at which people ask you that question about your hopefulness is the point at which you have exhibited hope in the face of ostensible hopelessness. When endurance, character, and hope can't be taken from you, even when everything else has been taken. That's when people ask the question of verse 15. Now, some people like to use this text as an excuse not to share the gospel with someone until somebody asks them about their hope. But most of the people who make that case aren't asking God to give them the kind of circumstances that would create the conditions in which that question would be asked. But if our God sees fit to give us those circumstances, creating the conditions in which that question may be asked of us, let's be ready. So if we end up in the gulags together because Justin Trudeau becomes the emperor of the world and not just the dictator of Canada, <laughs> the sad, lifeless, soul crushed, hope-robbed men who are in that forced labor camp with us should look at us and say, How do you do it? Maintain your humanity. Hang on to your soul. Still live with life in your eyes in such conditions as these. How? And we'll tell them of the one who was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, suffering the injustice of man so that we would not have to face the justice of God. We'll tell them that it's an honor for us to live for Christ the way that he lived for us. And we'll explain that the reward that he has waiting for us, for our patient and composed endurance through this trial, doesn't even compare... With the trial that we're enduring. But hear me well. That's not going to happen magically. It's not going to happen without practice or formation. See, if you can't handle Tuesday afternoon's difficulties when things aren't going well for you at work without repaying people with nasty tones or belittling language or whatever it is, if you can't handle life's regular difficulties, small trials and challenges, without indulging your flesh in those moments, what makes you think that when the kinds of moments that Peter's readers had to endure, those ones that really are holiness under pressure opportunities, what makes you think that you'll be able to handle those? If you can't handle the stressful moment in your home without taking it out of the, on those around you, you're not suddenly going to become noble, self-controlled, and restrained when it really counts. So this isn't a wait to apply this message when things ramp up in our nation to the place that they were ramped up in first century Rome against Christians. No, this is an apply it now in dramatically more comfortable circumstances, so that in the event that those circumstances begin to deteriorate, we'll be well-practiced in self-control, restraint of our emotions, and the exercise of meekness. And so this is practice it now. Practice it tomorrow. This is when your children revile and sin against you. Discipline them, yes, but restrain yourself such that they're not absorbing your wrath and are instead being meaningfully disciplined for their good. Practice that. Differentiate between those. When things are going poorly at work, you have those moments of pressure and stress. Restrain yourself, it's practice. Because we don't arrive at this place magically, the genuineness of our faith gets tested and strengthened and proved such that when we find ourselves in the more dramatic situations, we have had a lot of practice in the less dramatic situations.